0: You're listening to Penny Johnston with ABC Baby Talk Podcast. I wonder if there is a special toy or object at your house. I know that if you've got one, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's a blanket, a cushion, a toy, or an item that life is barely worth living without. Many parents I know worry about their child's obsession. Is it healthy? And why is this object's value sometimes extraordinary compared to anything or anyone else in the house? So is there a point when the attachment is too much and should you really be trying to separate your child from this object? Professor Stephen Tuber is a professor of psychiatry at City College New York and director of the doctoral program of clinical psychology. He has made an extensive study of transitional objects or, to us, blankie, teddy or whatever your child happens to call them. Before I did the interview, I was actually talking to my son about transitional objects and I thought it would be interesting to get his insight.
1: You're going to talk about why children are cuddling, like cuddling blankets and teddies.
0: Do you know why children will cuddle blankets and teddies, and think that they're really special?
1: Because um, they can play with them sometimes, and they like them. Like, you can cuggle them in bed.
0: You've got a friend who's got a special blanket, don't you? Yeah. And what would happen if something happened to the blankie?
1: Um, you would have to fix it, because it, they stopped making them.
0: Would that be a terrible thing?
1: Kind of, but you... But like you could try and repair it but I don't really um, but we don't really know what materials they used. I'll probably ask for a new one but there is no new one.
0: So Professor Cheever, thanks so much for talking to us. I'm really interested to know how you became interested in children's attachment to what's professionally known as transitional objects
2: it's a topic that is very close to my professional and personal heart, so that makes it very easy to want to talk about it.
0: Professionally, they're called transitional objects, but for us mm-hmm. parents, or even remembering back to being children, we've got knucknucks and blankies and teddies, and they, <laughs> these are the inanimate objects that our babies and toddlers just adore. How did they come to be professionally analysed and described as transitional objects?
2: Well, I, I, I think that it's one of those things that it was both both in the popular culture and in the academic culture, and, and one informed the other. The person who I think gave it the most play in the world of academic life was a British psychoanalyst named Donald Winnicott, who I think was really the, the greatest child therapist we've ever had. And for, hi, for him, the, one of the things that he was most fascinated by was the nature of play, and the ways in which a child's play brings about lasting capacities for creativity and lasting capacities for feeling a sense of aliveness. And so he thought a lot about, well, how, how does a child acquire this, and, and what is it about their development that allows this to occur? And that led him to thinking a lot about what he would call the capacity to be alone. And, you know, to be alone is really one of the great unsung heroes of what it means to be a viable human being. You know, when you think about what that the capacity to be alone is a huge factor in the ability to concentrate and therefore to do work. It's a huge factor in being able to feel comfortable, you know, within yourself. And so all of the recent talk about things like mindfulness and capacities for resilience and capacities to regulate your emotions, all of those things really have as, as their core uh, at the source uh, a capacity to feel comfortable being alone. And, and that's not just necessarily being physically alone, but it's actually having enough of a, of a collection of loving characters in your mind that you can draw upon whenever you need to so that even though you might be physically alone, you're not psychologically alone. And if you don't have that capacity, then you tend to be remarkably vulnerable to feeling restless, to feeling agitated, to feeling existentially vulnerable in all kinds of ways. The infant learns to be alone from the wonderful predictability and reliability of having attuned family and parents around, so that the more the infant knows in some way that when they have any sort of concern or fuss or distress that when they turn to a parent they can get a very reliable caretaking, then that gives the baby one of the great luxuries in human life which is the the ability to take good care for granted. And when you can take good care for granted, you don't have to spend all your time searching and scanning the mother's face and making sure she's attentive. You can actually start to look at the world and you can become interested in objects and how things move and how your body moves. And so your very ability to want to take on the world comes from the that kind of predictable, reliable caretaking that you get. Uh, one of Winnicott's great great quotes is that sort of the freedom to be creative comes out of maternal monotony. So the more the mom is sort of monotonous almost in her reliability, the more the infant has a base to to build on, a platform to build on. So when you get uh, that kind of connection, then, uh, so now you're, let's say, a year old or 18 months old or something like that, and you have this sense of connection and you have this sense of stability, you're more and more willing to sort of separate and and take on the world. And and certainly the ability to crawl and to walk uh, allows you to sort of really start to move around in the world. And that sets up the the next major uh, dilemma in life, which is what does it mean to be separate from people? So if I walk away and I toddle into the next room, I might be fascinated by all the things going on, but I also might, after a certain amount of time of being away physically and out of the sight of my caretaker, I may start to feel much more vulnerable. And so... uh you know, toddlers over time have to wrestle with this combination of keeping an inner image of their parent um, to tide them over when they're not within sight of their parent, on the one hand, and on this capacity to kind of do without their parent. And that's this very long prelude that I'm giving you uh, leads very much to the idea of how can I create an object? How can I imbue an object with the sounds, the smells, the memory of my caretaking person. So even when I'm not in their presence, I can have something that reminds me of their presence. And so what what you'll see very, very commonly in older infants and toddlers is often some kind of blanket or some kind of stuffed animal that's used by the parent to comfort the child when they're in bed starts to take on a life of its own. And from the child's point of view, that object comes to represent caretaking, represent mom, serve as a substitute for that kind of reliability that I described before. And for for Winnicott, he called that a transitional object because it's that object that allows the child to transition from needing to have the mother physically there all the time to having the mother so firmly entrenched in one's mind that you can call upon this image at any time and therefore don't need the physical transition object to kind of get you reconnected with a parenting figure. And I think part of why there's a whole mythology about you don't want to wash the child's blanket or if you lose the teddy bear, it's, it's a kind of a tragedy. It's because all of that texture and feel and smell all of those things are used by the child to, to more firmly establish the memory of their parenting figure. And the, you know, that, in turn, allows it to have an incredible sense of comfort. I mean, if you think about it, how bizarre is it for, a, let's say, an 18-month-old who's so full of life and so on the go and all over the place to surrender to go to sleep and go to sleep in, a, in their own bed in the dark what would allow that to happen? And wouldn't you expect a child to be quite panicky at that thought? Well, if the child has something with them in bed that represents their mom, then in fact they can go to bed much more calmly because they're not completely alone. They have this representation that can actually be right close to them and hold on to it. And, you know, those kind of transitional objects take on a, a very interesting form as you get older. Winnicott makes an argument and I very much agree that a lot of what we call culture or art or religion or love of music that all of those things are kind of the the cultural extensions of that kind of transitional object he would then call them transitional phenomena there's things that we do you know you can make an interesting argument that what is a belief in god you know, God, is God a real, a real concrete object, or is it some kind of spiritual feeling? Well, in a way, is a blanket the real mom, or is it just represent the mom? So that in many ways, all kinds of concepts have, are really kind of an outgrowth of the ability of the young infant to imbue meaning to a thing that's not exactly the original person, but something that stands for the original person.
0: It's rather ingenious, really, mm-hmm. of children Absolutely. to be able to do this. Is there an age where this really kicks in?
2: Well, I, I think blankets and things like that tend to kick in right around the time that a child uh, starts to be able to walk and talk, so usually in the second year of life. One of the most interesting things that i found I was I was once quoted in an article in the New York Times a year or two ago where there was a a column talking about transitional objects and when you go to the online version of this uh, article there were all these comments by different people commenting on the story and what I found fascinating was was that almost every single comment was the comment of an adult who wanted to admit to the world that it, they still kept their transitional object? So, so they still had, they still had their blankie, put it away somewhere, or a, or a teddy bear, or something like that. And so, even though we know better, and we're very much uh, rational beings, there's a part of us, just like there's a part of us that may have all kinds of superstitions. Um, that we are rooting for our favorite team and they won a championship when we wore a certain sweatshirt we're going to wear that sweatshirt again you know all that kind of what shrinks call magical thinking you know it, it is something quite magical to think that this blanket can somehow be a, a talisman uh, that protects you from harm and yet that is very much what a you know what an infant and a toddler and a preschooler does i mean if you went into the average preschool and looked in their cubbies you would probably find that at least half the cubbies have an animal or a blanket in there that the child brings, brings from home, and is kind of instructed to put in the cubby so it doesn't disrupt the day, but that they still bring it because they need that extra reassurance when they're away from home.
0: Now, not every child or toddler has one of these things. I Absolutely. mean, my, mine didn't have any in particular. hmm mm-hmm. Is there, is there well, a way you know, of picking, it, it, yeah, who, who does and who doesn't want
2: one? Well, you know, I, I think that's one of those places where nobody can really answer that question well because there are many, many children who don't have one and who are perfectly, you know, fine, loving, wonderful people. So I don't think anyone can really answer the question of why some kids have one and some kids don't. Although I will tell you that a lot of the kids who don't have a specific blanket or teddy bear may often have some other thing that they do which provides that same comfort. I'm thinking about a patient I once had who didn't have either a teddy bear or any sort of comforter but would with her right index finger twirl the back of her hair uh, in in this uh, kind of repetitive way whenever she was stressed and whenever she was vulnerable. So for her the touching of her hair in that way served the same function as this transitional object so it doesn't always have to be literally an object I remember when my older son was a very uh, was of of that age that when he would uh, go off to sleep before he was fully off to sleep he would call out and say arm and that was his signal for me to put my arm through the slats of his crib (laughs) and he would sort of stroke my arm you know for thirty seconds or so and then he'd say night and that means he was ready to go to bed, and I could pull my arm out, and he'd go to sleep. So for him, that kind of rhythmic touching of my skin served, served the same purpose. So kids are incredibly ingenious in what they come up with, but typically it's some kind of repetitive act. Uh, if it's not an object, it's a repetitive act that serves the same comforting purpose.
0: So something like we call them dummies in Australia, I think pacifiers in the United States uh-huh, or uh-huh. thumb sucking—that's mm. the same sort of thing. You
2: know, I, I, I think it. I think it is. You know, um, you know, by far and away the strongest reflex of newborns is the sucking reflex. So it's very easy to have so much of their way of making sense out of the world be through their mouth. That is the way you know. I obviously don't have to tell you, but babies' mouth things as really their first form of trying to get to know it. And they'll put almost anything possible in in their mouth. And so from that point of view, if you give a child a pacifier, um, you're really sort of playing to that strength. And so by all means, they're going to, you know, suck ferociously. And and usually if you don't make a point of kind of taking it away um, uh, at some, you know, good moment and replacing it with other things that interest the child, it's very easy for a child to get hooked on a pacifier and use that as their form of a a transitional object because, you know, sucking is even more comforting than holding a blanket. So in a way, a pacifier is sort of the ultimate, you know, seductive transitional object.
0: I understand, and and I don't want to get too Freudian here with the question, Uh but asking the child to give up. This object, because maybe they're a bit big to be carting a blanket to high school, but <laughs> uh, it has to be handled quite sensitively by parents.
2: Well, I'll, I'll tell you a story, Penny. Dear friends of mine had a son who was a year younger than my oldest son, and from the time he was incredibly young, he had this little stuffed raccoon that became his transitional object, and he would call this raccoon Ka, and Ka sort of went with him everywhere. And when he was getting ready to go off to college for the first time, he was really struggling with whether he should take car or not. And so his mom had him call me, and he and I had this very earnest, serious conversation about whether he should be taking car or not, given the fact that this is his first time away from home. And after a long discussion, he decided that it would be be best if, uh and best for, for you know preserving Ka that if he just left Ka at home in the drawer of his of his bedroom and this way he could always see it when he came back and he'd always know that it was never going to be lost, and so uh in fact, it is very hard to give it up, and you know I have to tell you i'm not a uh, a huge believer that a child has to has to give up that kind of thing, you know yes, I think that um there's uh a certain kind of social stigma attached to it beyond a certain age so that um, kids kind of learn that it's not considered cool by their peers at four and five or older to have one of these things so then it becomes a kind of secret thing that they admit to no one you know girls are usually a little easier than boys in that regard you can go into many ten twelve even fifteen year old girls bedrooms and on their bed, they have a whole series of stuffed animals that they might have had when they were very little that they sort of openly display, and everyone just sort of thinks that's cute. With boys, it's much harder for them to, quote, get away with that. And so boys tend to do like my friend did with Kyle, which was sort of put him in a drawer where no one could see him. But nevertheless, he still was very present and alive in his mind. And just like all the, all the, the readers of that New York Times article, who some of them who said they were in their 40s and 50s, who still kept their transitional object secreted away somewhere, but still very important to them.
0: Yeah, well, I do know some friends, only girls, of course, but are fessed up to still having their inverted commas thing. But, I mean, like, does it still serve a purpose in our grown-up world?
2: Well, you know, I'll give you a silly example. So I'm quite a fanatic a fan of a basketball team in America, and I'm, I'm very struck by how when you're a big sports fan of a particular team that you develop a tie to them that in many ways is, is almost as if they were a real person to you. So if your team loses, you're sort of depressed that whole day. If your team wins, you're kind of elated that whole day. You're thinking about the team. You have them in your head. You might be watching them on the television, and if they make a bad play, you yell at the screen as if somehow they could hear you. You know, all of that kind of behavior is somewhat mad when you think about it. Um, you know, obviously these guys on this team never know you, have, Don't wouldn't couldn't care a bit whether you like them or not but you develop this incredible attachment to them. So being a a sports fan, a a zealot of a particular team, in its own way is that same kind of it's half real and half play um, quality to things that we all, I should say many of us, develop and use all through our adult lives. To me, having a sports team that you're attached to is really not that much different from having a blanket as a toddler, that you're attached to, it's a much more, you know, sophisticated form of things. But I think in many ways it's just an adult version, and I think there's so many things that, as adults, we develop these kind of not fully rational attachments to, in in much the same way that a child knows that the blanket really isn't mom, but on the other hand, it's not just an ordinary blanket. Um, you know, one of the great, one of the things I remember seeing in a nursery school was that. Uh, a little boy was incredibly upset because he had left his blanket at home, and one of the other little boys thought to comfort him by coming over and giving him his blanket. And the first, the first child was indignant. How could you possibly expect that your blanket would mean anything to me? I want my blanket. <laughs> uh, and so it's that kind of incredible attachment to a very specific object that, to me, is not that much different from you know, your all-time favorite musician or your all-time favorite soccer player or whatever. You know, I think all of our more irrational attachments come out of that same transitional space between what's fully real and what's fully imaginary. I'll give you one more story. And I often use this story when I talk about kind of the, the magic of play. So I had inculcated in both my son's a love for the same basketball team that I have. And when my younger son was about five years old, um, we had a playroom in our house. with It was wood floors and the, the, with thin wood slats. And there was just enough space in between the slats where if you had a, a, a playing card that had the name of the basketball player and a picture, you could stand it up in these slats. And so my five-year-old son would sort of put together 10 or 15 cards standing up, Uh, you know, lined up with each other. He laid down with his stomach on the floor. And you could hear him giving a whole kind of announcing of an entire basketball game as if he was like a TV announcer. And he's completely engrossed in this and saying it very loud so you could hear it all through the house. And in the midst of this, I had to call him to come take a bath. And so when I called out his name and said, you know, come on up and take a bath, he immediately said, okay, Dad, in a minute and then just went right back to playing the, playing the announcing for a few and few, you know, a half a minute or so, and then came up and went up to take a bath. And that, that experience, in its own way, is quite magical, because what it tells us is, is that he was so engrossed in the play that at that moment it's as if he was in this entirely separate world. And yet when I called out his name, he could immediately leave that world, put that world on hold, You know, check in with me, check in with the, quote, real world, give up the real world, go back to the play world for another bit of time, and then uh, uh, give that up and go back to the real world. So play is this really, it's not a hallucination, it's not some crazy delusion, and yet it's a space that, that a child creates that's incredibly intense and meaningful at that moment, and feels to the child at that moment, every bit as real as any other reality and yet on some level the child knows the difference between that it's playing and not actual reality and so that's part of what also what Winnicott was talking about that play itself is part of that transition between what's real and what's in your mind what's imaginary and all of us no matter what age we are always carry with us both the ability to accurately perceive reality and at the same time to have a a whole fantasy life in which we indulge ourselves in all kinds of ways. And, you know, daydreams and all kinds of things like that are all other examples as adults of the same kinds of things that we see in young children in terms of the, the capacity to play. And, you know, usually people who can't play are not playful or don't have a sense of humor and come across as much more wooden and and sort of controlling, we usually don't really enjoy those people, and that we tend to enjoy people who have that kind of capacity for whimsy and playfulness and creativity. And part of why we so value young childhood is because we see it in, in almost every aspect of a healthy child. And as we go through life and get older, we tend to lose a lot of that ability because we have to become civilized and socialized. And so all of that kind of creativity and transitional objects that, that, that children have are also part of what we value as adults, even if we can't usually indulge in them because of having to be proper.
0: I'm hoping that any sports mad dads that are a bit worried about their children being a bits of sissies by having one of these transitional objects will be listening because that's probably how <laughs> they got their love for sport in the first place.
2: I I do think that's very true, and and I very much want to say that having a blanket or a special doll or a toy has absolutely nothing to do with how masculine or how feminine you are. It's actually very much uh, a measure of how fully human you are, and I would never discourage a child from having one of these things because they're very valuable things to have.
0: Okay, well, I'm going to call on your professional expertise while we've got you, is what if the the unthinkable happens and blankie goes missing or falls apart in the wash? (laughs) How can we cope?
2: Well, well, I'm going to give you a cop-out answer, okay? So the cop-out answer is that if you're really clever, that as you see your child getting attached to a particular blanket or toy, try to get a duplicate of it and get the child to sort of spend time with either one so that the child, both of them have a certain smell or a certain attachment that way. And this way, if you lose one, the, the other one is, as a backup is really not a big deal. If you unfortunately you know, lose one, the, the most important thing that I would say to you is, is that one of the things that's most special about a transitional object is that it's an object that the child creates the child finds the child selects which one you can put six stuffed animals in there and for whatever reason the child is going to pick one to hold on to and is going to more or less ignore most of them so if the tragedy occurs and you lose the blanket or you lose the teddy bear give the child a chance not don't push the child but just give the child the opportunity to 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 get a substitute one, but let them choose it, as opposed to, oh, I'm going to go out and buy this special teddy bear to replace the other one. That's very well-intentioned, but it kind of destroys one of the most important things about having a transitional object, which is that it's something that the child creates on their own. And so as long as you let the child, give the child the space and the time to find another one on their own to replace it, the child will be fine. It's really part of the the originality and the creativity of a child, even as young as a year old, to pick something and to make that thing sort of larger than life. And therefore, you shouldn't see it as a sign of the kid being weak or childish or anything like that. And again, as the child gets older, and particularly as the child gets to school age, sometimes parents start to panic that, oh, my goodness, what will people say About me as a parent, or my kid as a kid, if they still have this special object that they want to take around everywhere, and I do think that the more you can, in a low-key way, you know, simply say, you know, one of the rules of kindergarten is that your your lammy has to stay home; that kids can't bring their lammies to school, and. You know, let's, let's make sure we put Lammy in a really good place on your bed or on the living room or whatever, and you can you know, kiss Lammy goodbye before you go off to school, and when you come home, Lammy will always be there waiting. And as long as that's the message as opposed to suck it up, buddy, and you don't need this thing anymore, that's for babies, the kid will really be fine, and there's really nothing to worry about. I think you parents run the risk of, of making it a bigger deal If the child is deprived of it or tricked out of it in some way, then you're really setting yourself up as being remarkably non-attuned to what the child needs. You know, by all means, let your child have a transitional object if they create one. Don't sweat it if they don't, because if they don't, it means they don't need it. And when it comes time for them to kind of wean themselves from it, give them as much support in that process as possible, and whatever you do, don't throw it away, even if it becomes really disgusting. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, don't wash it or try to sanitize it because it's in, it's in the wearing away and it's in the smell and everything that it has, most of the memories that the child needs to hold on to. So uh, in that worst-case scenario, put it in the back of a closet somewhere or on a shelf or in a back drawer and let the child deal with it, um, the vast, vast majority of time, the child will just kind of give it up. It'll just kind of go in a limbo, and they'll slowly withdraw their attachment from it, and they'll move that attachment toward other things in the world. And so that is as it should be, and as long as we don't muck it up by our own anxiety, it's really a a perfectly lovely part of childhood.
0: Professor Stephen Tuber, who's the Professor of Psychiatry at City College New York and Director of the Doctoral Program of Clinical Psychology at City College. I really hope you enjoyed this interview. Don't forget, it's part of the Baby Talk podcast, which is published weekly. You can access it and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode on iTunes and on the ABC Radio app. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and there is a good archive of some of our older podcasts on Pinterest as well. You really don't have to miss an episode. I'm Penny Johnston. I will see you next time on Baby Talk. Baby Talk.